Hey, everybody. Welcome back to this episode of the Property Profits Real Estate Podcast. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of student rentals? Chances are you have. Question is, have you ever thought seriously about actually doing it? Mm -hmm. And I know before I met today's guest, my impression of student rentals was myself as a student <laughs> back in the day. No way in hell I would rent to myself back then. Also, Animal House kind of came to mind a few times. I love that movie. Hate the idea of having those guys in one of my houses. So today's special guest, Jillian Irving, is a student rental specialist, and she's going to set us straight. She's going to set me straight on exactly what the pros and cons are to this. So Jillian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. Me too. Me too. So Jillian, just a quick, quick 30-second encapsulation. How the heck did you end up getting into student rentals in the first place? You know, people ask me that all the time. You know what? I I fell into real estate back in 2009. It's interesting because it was kind of the same economic times as it is now, right? When everything kind of fell apart. Anyway, that's, I didn't really know anything about anything. I had just read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I went for a run one day and I ran past a house for sale in a great neighborhood. And instead of just going for a run, I went for a run and bought a house. And my husband was like, oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> Anyway, and through a kind of series of events, we refinanced that property and I got a coach, which I recommend everyone get. And we can maybe circle back to that later. And then I got really deliberate on a strategy that made sense for me. So what I needed back in the day was a real estate strategy that had like greater than average cash flow. And mm -hmm. so that is what led me towards this strategy and which has kept me there because that is exactly what it delivers on. It has like the single family, all the goodness about single families, but these students and renting to students has better than average cash flow. So that's well, so let's walk through thing. that. So what does a let's take one of your average kind of properties in your portfolio mm -hmm. and compare and contrast that property renting out as a normal single family home versus a student rental. Can you give us an idea of what that might look like? So everything is changing in the student landscape these days. I mean, well, rents everywhere are going up, but rents for students also have, I would say the rate increase this past year for student rentals has gone crazy. I raised my rents by 40% in some of the markets. And it's not that we're trying to be greedy landlords. It's that the market is, there's so little you know, availability that this is what the market is calling for. So mm -hmm. in Hamilton, I have a seven, like one property, for example, I have a seven bedroom property there. I'm getting 725 bucks a room this year. So it's over $5,000 a month. If that were a single family home, I mean, maybe 2,600, maybe 27. Now, was that yeah. even a, would it even be a seven bedroom home no, 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 no. It wouldn't be set up that way. I mean, it would be a big single family home, but yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe the most $3,000 if it was a single family home. So the margins are big for a student rental because of course you chop up the house into as many rooms that are safe and comfortable for the students. I mean, you don't want to pack them in there like sardines, but you do think creatively about space management when you're mm -hmm. renting to students. So you get as many rooms as possible and yeah. So when you rent by the room versus to a single family, you can charge a whole lot more. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we're looking at five grand a month versus 3000 
3000 Okay, so you say, well, only $2,000 more, but here's the big difference, right? Your, your net is exponentially more than what it would be. Probably be very difficult to even make a single family home cash flow in Hamilton, yeah. much less, you know, anything like that. So yeah, yeah it's a huge, huge, huge difference. Yeah. Okay. So we get the pros. The pros are that the the cash flow is significantly better than the same property as a mm -hmm. single family home. I think everybody can kind of in their minds have an idea of what the cons are. Can you tell us what the real cons are and what the stereotypes are that you found not necessarily to be true? Mm -hmm. Well, the first stereotype is exactly the one you brought up, which is people who have seen the movie Animal House or who themselves were animalish. <laughs> animalish at university, they're like, well, I wouldn't want to rent to them. You know, so they're worried about damages, right? So most landlords, whether you rent to students or other, I mean, the primary concern is one, am I going to get paid every month? And two, are they going to take care of my place? Yeah, so this is like it, a yeah. universal landlord concern. For students, actually, the rental payment issue is actually more secure, I would say, in a student rental than it is in a single family home, because not only do you have the students who are sign the lease and say they'll pay you every month, but I actually get a rental guarantee from the parents. So I have two mm -hmm. mechanisms in which to get paid, which is really helpful. Like if Johnny doesn't pay, I phone his mom and then his mom gets all I rate and pays me right away. But mostly kids pay yeah. at university. I mean, when you think about how you were, you work really hard in high school to get to university, like that's the destination. So mm -hmm. you're not going to forego your living arrangements like you have that sorted before you get there because you know how important it is. So the rental component is better than a single family home. And I'll say as a landlord in Ontario too, where there's all sorts of landlord tenant board issues where you have tenants who come and then who never go. Yeah, the professional uh, have, tenants. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that doesn't exist with students either, right? I mean, they're transitory by nature, right? They come, they're in residence for first year, they go to a, you know, a student rental for the next three years and they just carry on. So you are always turning over people your coming and coming and going every all three the time. years you never have to worry about people coming and never going so you have an opportunity to always reset your rents keep on top with of market rent so there's something that's kind of nice about that too i mean there's a security inherent in that as well so i'd say the payment issue and then the, the professional tenant issue is better for student rentals and then the the damage thing like what about these jerky tenants are they going to mm. trash your place and first of all, I screen my tenants and I just, I just never had anyone who's really done anything too terrible. And I modify like the addendums in my leases to make sure that I'm on top of their shenanigans. So for example, yeah. I did have a group of tenants once who they had a, I don't know, it was like a outdoor, it was a beer pong tournament in one of my garages that wasn't heated and they turned on all the space heaters and oh. And it was like a three-day beer pong tournament. And so I got a huge utility bill. Well, you only need to get me once before that gets like woven into my lease. So I've had a utilities cap in my leases ever since. So they can never get me again on that. So I get wise pretty quickly on the ways of the kids. So utilities cap is something I use to make sure that they don't have like the windows open and the heat on in winter or the mm -hmm. windows open and the air conditioning on in summer. And then the damage, like I have, you know, clauses for joint and several responsibility, meaning, you know, if some weird damage happens in the living room and someone doesn't take responsibility for it, they all, they all have to pay. They all have to chip um, in. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, they all have to chip in. And then, you know, it kind of makes them self-police, you know, if they know that they're on the hook, if their friends have a party that wrecks something and that they're going to have to pay for it, then you're kind of more mindful about like the behavior of the people you invite to the house. So I feel like I can manage the sort of damage risks, one through my lease and also through like I have a, an addendum in my lease. I'll say like, this is what the repairs cost. A broken screen costs X number of dollars. A you know, drywall repair costs this amount of dollars. And so well, they I see I, it you know, right up and right up and personal. Yeah. yeah. They know. Exactly so whatever is broken from whatever, this is what it's going to cost you. And so I've never had any issue recovering any of that if I needed, but it's not really common to be honest, because the parents are the guarantors. And if you really have a problem, you like, you can call the parents. Oh, mom. And- yeah. She'll, she'll whip the kid into shape. That's well, smart. this never existed when I was a student. I don't know about you. My parents had no clue what was going on and they wouldn't have paid even if they had been asked. <laughs> but nowadays parents really are so involved in their kids' lives that yeah. it's a mechanism of security that existed. That, that well, here's, existed. What happen- here's what happened with, when I graduated from high school, Jillian, my mom moved out. She moved to Mexico for Christ's sake. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> <Bye. laughs> Yeah. So yeah, she wasn't yeah. caring what you were doing at university. Yeah, not not, not so much. But yeah, yeah, no, that is that is fascinating. So speaking of on the uh, landlord tenancy bureau in, in uh-huh. Ontario, which is very, very heavily in favor of the tenants, mm-hmm. right? How does your strategy of having multiple tenants in a house play into that or not be affected by that or or work within that. What what does that look like compared to a normal tenant? Well, I mean, we're I'm obviously the the rules and the parameters are the same for students as they are for anybody else. So we're we follow the LTB and the Residential Tenancy Act like anybody else does. You know, we have all the students on one lease. But as I said, like these problems, there's very little friction because students are there for a reason. Their tenancy is short. They're moving on. Yeah, so we've I've never had to. Evict You've never anyone. had to evict anybody. No, no, no. That's no. Yeah, that's perfect. So I guess the other question that kind of comes to mind for me would be, you know, if you've got in that case that example, your Hamilton property, you've got seven tenants living in seven students living in the in the property. What about personality issues, complaints, it conflicts, is. drama? You know all that kind of stuff that I would imagine flares up from time to time. It does. And so I've got two answers for that. So primarily I try to structure my portfolio so that it's groups of kids moving together. So these are a group of seven who are friends before. This so how, how, how do you do that? How do you get them? You just rent the house to seven people and you say, come with your group of seven and people who come with a group of four, you say, that's not the house for you. But I knew that, you know, in Hamilton, that's common. Like there's many university towns where people move around together as a giant group. Not all universities or colleges operate that way. Wherever possible, I try to get groups of of friends to come together. And then, then you're, I mean, that does not eliminate conflict, but it minimizes the possibility that there'd be difficulties. And then the other answer is, I mean, I have a property management team. So I think like any real estate investor who's been in the business for a while, I offloaded the day-to-day management of tenant conflict a long time ago. I'd rather work on my business than in my business. So mm-hmm. I delegate I delegate the responsibility of tenant conflicts to my property manager who will handle that 
professionally and seamlessly. So that's, that is not my worry. That's a fascinating idea. Hold that thought for a second. Hi there, this is Dave DeBow, and real estate investors hire me to raise capital the right way. Why? Because most of them are stuck with too small of a portfolio, and they don't know how to attract investors and raise money for their deals. So I help them to connect, capture, and close their ideal money partners. Bottom line, when you've got a deal, you're going to have the capital to do it. So go ahead and book a no-cost capital clarity session with me at bookachatwithdave.com. Again, that's book at chatwithdave.com. Nice. But okay, so let's rewind a few years when it was your worry. What were some of the issues that would come up and how would you deal with it? Just out of curiosity, what's the story that kind of comes to mind that you remember? I'm just trying to think if I've ever had any bad. I mean, look, I think it's the common stuff like people are too noisy uh, or whatever, right? So I'll say this there are other student landlords who aren't, who don't do the same screening that I do, where they have people who are students and then they rent it to people who were not students. And Mm. that is a cause for disaster because then you have timetable conflicts, right? Mm. So you have people who are working jobs versus students who really their, their schedule is all over the place. So I learned actually from some colleagues of mine who had this as a complaint. And I made sure that any tenant of mine has to show evidence that they're a student. Now you have to be careful of, of not discriminating, I guess. Right. Exactly. But, you know, as part of my application process, I asked them to include a photo of their student identification, right. Just so that I am confident that I'm renting two students for a student rental. And so that all the bodies who are in there are actually at least on the same sort of timetable. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that is one, you know, sort of screening technique to avoid the biggest problem, which is like, they're up too late. I'm up too early, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, Jillian. So when it comes to growing your portfolio, scaling your portfolio, doing more deals, yeah, I understand you and your husband probably got off to a good start on your own, on your own financial mm-hmm. steam. Did yeah. you eventually start working with partners, investors, joint venture partners, that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah, I did, you know, and that's a a really exciting part of the real estate journey is when people recognize or see in you that you have a little bit of a track record and more established track record, and they're liking the results they're seeing in your portfolio. And they say, hey, I want to like attach my cart to your wagon and let's do this together. And so I've been doing that for a long time now with partners really successfully as well. Nice. Jillian, we were talking a little bit before we pressed record on this on this episode. And I love what you do to kind of get the word out about what you're up to and, and to, to grow your network of prospects and potential partners. So walk us through a little bit about what does that look like now? And how did you get started with that? Well, I got started because I I recognized early on, like I alluded to at the beginning of the show that, you know, I could try to do this by myself, or I could learn from people who are further along the tracks and wiser than me, like why invent the wheel when there's plenty of people who are doing what I want to do and who are really successful at it. So I got a coach early on. It was the best decision of my life. And it's funny because people sort of balk at the idea of spending like I don't know, five or $10,000 for a coach, but in real estate, I mean, my goodness, one misstep and you're going to lose way more than that. So 
so I hired a coach. I hired Julie Broad as a coach. And one of her first pieces of advice to me was, you know, we need to get you out in front of people talking so that you can establish your credibility in the space, you know, getting on podcasts, going to meetups, being on stage, and just feeling comfortable talking about what you're doing. Because even if you're not the most advanced person in the space. There might be people who are further ahead than you or have a bigger portfolio or more doors or more whatever. The fact of the matter is, is that you are ahead of someone and you always have something to learn. Again, like whether you're at this stage of the, on the ladder or this stage of the ladder. And I really, that really resonated with me because I always kind of had this imposter syndrome. Like, well, there's people who have bazillion dollar portfolios and mine is this. And, you know, am I am I an authority enough? And the fact is, is that we all are an authority to a certain extent. And there's always someone who is like looking up to the level you're at saying, I want to learn from you. So, so I just started talking. I came on, I've been on your podcast before and been on several podcasts in the front of the room for meetup groups. Yeah. And just talking about my passion for real estate. And that's where I meet people who get to know me as a person, mm-hmm. right? You know, like, well, I like that, Jillian. I kind of like what she's up to. And I want to hear more about, about what she's doing, what her portfolio looks like. And that's really how my joint venture partnerships have started, really organically meeting people face-to-face at events or via podcasts or something like that. Slow and steady, right? No, Deep yeah, slow rap- and steady. That makes sense. But so let's rewind when you got that very wise advice from, from Julie sharp, sharp lady. How did you first get started? Like, did you already have some experience speaking in public? Because again, so many people are petrified of the idea of getting up on stage or getting on a podcast or something like that. So I was, but I was seeing success in the strategy I had taken. I could see that what I was doing and where I had started was the right direction. And so I wasn't selling anything. I was Mm -hmm. talking about what I was doing and why I liked student rentals. So I, I've never been afraid of talking in public, really. It was more about finding the right people. So Julie, again, helped me with that. Like, I remember she set me up with Quentin D'Souza and I went to the Durham REI group. And then I met other friends in Hamilton who were doing stuff there. And I was, I spoke at their groups. And then I started like knocking on doors saying, hey, can I be a guest? Can I talk about student rentals? And I just started talking and talking and talking about student rentals. And then, you know, me and my colleagues, Monica Jazik, Rachel Oliver, we actually started a TV show. Like we approached Rogers Television and said, hey, we're these three women. We have three different strategies. We'd like to start a TV show. But it was really, I mean, you just kind of had to let go of the fear and just start talking about, as I say, you just have to start talking about what you're doing, recognizing that no matter where you're at, that can be an authority for someone on the spectrum somewhere. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. And hats off to you. So if somebody's watching this or listening to this and thinking, hey, that's a good idea. How do I go about reaching out to these real estate clubs and getting their attention and and getting the opportunity to speak in front of their groups? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say, first of all, you have to just start attending them. I mean, once people get to know your face, you're going to start to get to know the people who are leading them. And it's it's nothing more than that. It's really about just connecting and doing and putting in some of the time that's required, right? 
so yeah, start get, you got to get, you got to get your face out there. Either you're going to do it on social media or you're going to do it in person. I mean, there's lots of ways to do this quickly. Some people want to do it on TikTok or on Instagram and they just put out little reels about what they're doing or other people are going to do it in person. And neither way is right or wrong. Just one is probably faster, right? Mm -hmm. but yeah. You got to get your face out there. You got to start talking one way or the other. <laughs> right? You got to let people know what you're up to. It, yeah. Well, this is fantastic, Jillian. If people want to find out more about you and, and connect with you, how can they do mm -hmm. that? Well, they can find me through my student rental website, which is called investinstudentrentals.com. And also as a part of this real estate journey, I've I've become a mortgage broker as well to you know handle the just the money conversations that I have with my partners as well. So they can find me there, which is Jillian at lendcity.ca. Yeah. So I'm 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 free to chat. Perfect. Jillian, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. It's always a blast. Thanks so much, Dave. It's been great talking to you again, too. All right, everybody, take care, and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again. Well, hey there. Thanks for tuning into the Property Profits podcast. If you like this episode, that's great. Please go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. Give us a good review. That'd be awesome. I appreciate that. And if you're looking to attract investors and raise capital for your deals, then I'm going to invite you to get a complimentary copy of my newest book right back there. There it is. The Money Partner Formula. You can get a PDF version at InvestorAttractionBook.com. Again, InvestorAttractionBook.com. Take care.